0: Well, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for Second uh, Samuel and just how we see your hand working, and, and Lord, we, we pray tonight that you would um, uh, just show us what you desire to see here in this text as we uh, make our way through at least part of chapter 7, and Lord, we pray that you would just uh, give us clear understanding and um, apply it to our lives, and Lord, we thank you for... This place in which we meet, and thank you for those who are able to make it out, and we just pray that you'd uh, bless our time tonight as your people. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. All right, Chapter seven of Second Samuel. We left with one of David's wives ticked off Adam <laughs> and bearing the consequences of having no children to the day of her death. Kyle it was uh, chapter 6 she wasn't too happy about David dancing before the Lord and all that stuff so today we look at chapter 7 and in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 it's probably some commentators say it could possibly be one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it, it does one thing it ties the messianic line for Christ to David, via God's promise, and it's it's interesting as we go through this. I mean, because you have all these twists and turns in the opening chapters of Second Samuel, and it doesn't really seem like a whole lot happens. Um, it's all kind of conversations, you might say. But here, it, it actually bridges. It offers this link that bridges a link between the promise of a savior to Adam all the way back in Genesis, with the coming of the Savior in Jesus. And without that bridge, we would have a problem. Uh, So what happens in this chapter is alluded to. It's either alluded to explicitly or implicitly, but it's alluded to all over the Bible. And the the words spoken by God in this chapter are still shaping even human history today. So we want to go through this and look at the covenant, the Davidic covenant, that God had uh, with with David now in the Bible there's a bunch of covenants in the Old Testament, okay some of them are what we call conditional. Can anybody give me an example of a conditional covenant? How about the covenant that God made with Adam, okay some call that the Adamic com- covenant that that can be construed as a agreement between Adam and God, and what was the agreement? You can do whatever you want in this garden, but what? As long as you don't do this. And what happened? He did that, right? They did that. So that was a conditional covenant. Okay, it's a promise based on a condition. Well, there's also unconditional covenants. And so in the Old Testament, we have several unconditional covenants. The Noah covenant is what would be considered a a uh, Unconditional covenant, God makes a promise to Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 9, never to flood the, the earth again. It didn't say, what if you do this, then I'm going to. No, he didn't say that. So it's an unconditional covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is recorded in Genesis uh, 12 and following. and It promises that God will make Abraham's name great, his descendants numerous, and that he would be a father of many nations. And he also, in that covenant, he also shares some of the geographical boundaries given to the descendants of Abraham or Israel. Uh, some refer to that as the Palestinian covenant, but it's, it has to do with the, the, the land mass that God gave Israel. That's an unconditional covenant. It doesn't matter what Israel does. That's their land. All right. Now, we see it. Them giving up land and regaining land, and that's all based on kind of their their obedience. So you'd think, well, isn't it a conditional covenant? Not really, because in the end, they're going to have their land, all right, and not based on their own behavior either. Uh, there's one called the Levitical covenant, talking about the Levitical priesthood, how God is going to care for the temple through through the tribe of Levi. There's the Davidic covenant, which we'll look at tonight, and um, it amplifies kind of the, a section of the Abrahamic covenant, but this time it's uh, dealing with the, the seed of Abraham. It promises that David will have a seed, a physical line of descendants that will last forever. And we're going to see how that plays out. And that leads to, obviously, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, serving as king. And then there's also one called the New Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah mentions this. It was made first with Israel and then all mankind, really. It's God's promise to forgive sin through the Messiah. And you say, well, isn't that conditional? Well, it's conditional in the sense that God does the picking, <laughs> right? I mean, he elects us for salvation. In that way, it's conditional. But once you enter into that covenant, once you're brought into the new covenant, a covenant with God through Jesus Christ, that, can, that, that covenant is unconditional. Once you're a Christian, in other words, there's nothing that's going to take that away. Once your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. All right, You can't, down the road, God can't say, well, you know what? You really turned out to be a, a, a bad apple. Now I'm not going to forget it. All your sins are going to be in play now, and you're going to go to hell. No, he, he could never do that. So it's an unconditional covenant. Well, tonight we want to look at the new covenant. And so it mentions this in Second um, Samuel here, chapter 7. And it starts off with David making a, uh, a request here. And it says in, in verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, one thing I need to say here is this is not chronological by any means. Okay, it makes no chronolo- chronological sense, this chapter. So you can't say, okay, well, where'd the rest come from? Because is he still done fighting all the battles? It's kind of like injected in here. All right. And so he's saying when the king lived in his house and, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surroundings, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So he begins to make a comparison. The battles are over. Everything's kind of settled down. The dust has settled down. They're out on the deck. They're He's reestablished Jerusalem as their capital. The Ark is there. Everything's good. All the enemies are in check, and him, David, and God's prophet Nathan are kind of sitting out on the deck, watching the sun set, probably drinking a, some tea or something. And they go, "Hey, you know what? This doesn't seem right. God's house is in a tent, and here I am in this palatial house. And you notice it says there that the God, the the Lord." Yahweh had given David rest from all the enemies around him. It's interesting because on the seventh day of creation, God rested. Genesis 2 tells us that. And this is that one day of creation without the version of that formula that we read in the other days of creation. There was evening and there was morning. What? The first day. All right? you, don't, you don't have that formula on the day of rest. And so it suggests that the Sabbath is a day without end. In other words, not the Sabbath particularly, but the idea. It's God's giving us an example, all right, that we should have a day of rest. Uh, Some people want to call it Saturday. Some people want to call it Sunday. I don't think God's particular in which day you pick. The idea is we're not meant to work seven days a week 24-7. That's just not how God created it. Uh, And so here you, you, you see that humanity kind of rejected God's invitation to rest on the seventh day in and in, instead was really cursed with a, a restless labor. In Genesis chapter 3, you read about that. That's part of the curse. And now you're going to toil. You have this peaceless conflict going on. And God graciously promised rest to his people, a promise marked each Sabbath day. And Joshua fulfilled that promise in the conquest of the land It became a place of rest for the wandering, the homeless people of Israel. But this fulfillment was only partial. And so the the people didn't fully trust God at this point. So they lacked really the the confidence to completely uh, drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And so they were kind of a failure in that sense. Judges chapter 2 talks about that. And from the time of the nations around Israel, they were just kind of a, back in that time, they were a thorn in Israel's side, just continually, their enemies. They just didn't wipe them out. They just continued to do that. And we saw that through the, the first part of this book. And so now only under King David, finally under the reign of King David, who is God's king for Israel. Remember, they wanted a king. They whined for a king, and God, they rejected God as their king. And Samuel, and uh, the first part, first Samuel, talked about how who became their king? Saul. And it wasn't a reward to them. It was a curse upon them. It was due to their disobedience. that he, You want a king? I'll give you a king. And remember Samuel, he even tried to reason with God and with the people. You don't want this. This is not going to be good. But they wouldn't listen because they want to be like everybody else. And so God gave them Saul as their king for 40 years. It was miserable. Started out OK, but then it just went south real quick. And so the peace brought by David, part of that is because now this is God's anointed king. The people can enjoy rest from their enemies because this is this is God's time for them. All right? This is God raised up David as their prince, as their king. We're going to find out, though, when we get to chapter 8, that the peace that this rest that it's talking about here was short-lived. All right? Because it doesn't last long because David's own sin... Brings conflict right back into the heart of the nation. And you'll see that in 2 Samuel 11 through 20. But this moment is a picture of rest. And I think that it's, it's, it's important that we look at it as a picture of rest of a, of a coming Messiah who is going to bring rest to his people. That's really what it's picturing. It's picturing the rest that Jesus gives us. Well, that's what Jesus said. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, come to me, all you who are weary, what, and burdened, and I will, what, give you rest, all right? So it's kind of a, a picture of what's to come. Jesus was claiming to be God's Messiah there, come to defeat our enemies, he established God's kingdom, but in the meantime, with peace established, David's thoughts kind of go to the rest thing as he gets kind of... Maybe as ADD or something, he's got to do something, okay? I, I, can't, I can't just sit here and relax, so I'm going to construct a temple for God. And that's what he wants to do there in verse 2. David wants to house the ark that's now, he brought it to Jerusalem, and there's perhaps even a hint of embarrassment in his in his dialogue here because he's kind of looking at the beautiful cedar palace that he lives in and, and this this well worn tent that, that God's ark dwells in, and maybe he's thinking, Man, this 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 isn't right. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter twelve, verses ten and eleven. Deuteronomy chapter twelve, verses ten and eleven, Moses warned the people not to worship God according to the ways of the nations. In other words, you don't worship like the other people worship. That's not the way I want you to worship. They were to centralize their worship in a temple. So it could be properly regulated. All right? He wanted boundaries for the worship. And, and basically, here, David's instinct is a good one, and initially it's commended even by the prophet. Look at what he says there in verse, verse 3. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. So that looks like, hey, this is, God's behind this, let's do it. Go for it. But, as we see, <laughs> God has other ideas. God has vastly other ideas. And sometimes that's the way it is. That's the way it is in ministry. That's the way it is in life. Right? We think sometimes we're going to help God out. And God has to tap, tap us on the shoulder through circumstances and say, ah, excuse me, I don't need your help. Thank you very much. I don't need your help. Okay, I don't, I don't need somebody to do what I need to do. I'm perfectly capable of doing it through you. But that doesn't mean I need you. So in verse 4, you see God kind of puts out this prohibition here. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So that same night, he goes to bed. Well, here's what the word of the Lord says. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. And so this is God, once again, supernaturally giving revelation through his prophet, to his king. And you say, "Well, why does God want to postpone at this point?" And we're going to talk about that. He says, "Would you build a house? Would you build me a house to dwell in?" In other words, who do you think you are, David? You're actually going to build me a house to dwell in? Now, if you stop and think about this, it's it's a pretty serious question. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Now, he's not complaining here. God's not whining. He's saying, I really don't need a house. (laughs) All right, you're missing the purpose here, David. Uh, I, I, I I don't need this. Uh, the answer seems to be that God wants to highlight a couple truths here. Um, and, and I think part of it is, the key word there in verse 5, if you look at this, it says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? All right, you and me. That's kind of what he's, he's painting this scenario. Are you the one to build me a house? That's, that's God's question. God does not need David. And yet at this point, somehow David thought maybe God needed him. It's not as if he ever needed a house, verse 6, or ever been lobbying for one. He goes down in verse, verse 7 there. He says, in all the places where I have moved with all the people, of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, this is not something I'm asking for. I don't need this. And yet, David is intent, it seems, on doing this. Now, the king may have a palace, but where does God live? Among his people. That's what he says, right? Hey, I haven't had a house before, and I was okay, because I'm not confined to a house. See, David lost his perspective of who he was talking about. He's talking about the almighty creator God. God doesn't dwell in a house. That's why it's so important when we kind of dialed down last Sunday about what is, you know, the church. Because so many people think the church is a building. It's not a building. The church is made up of people, of individuals who've committed their lives to Christ and when the temple was finally built even solomon acknowledges in first kings 8:27 the, the he says the heavens even the highest heaven cannot contain you he's talking to god how much less this temple i have built that's what solomon says after he builds his temple which was an incredible temple which was by the way destroyed <laughs> right so Babylonians wiped it out. So God's point is, hey, temple's come and go. I am God. I I don't need to dwell in something materially as you're thinking. Um, And as a matter of fact, he kind of turns everything upside down right there for David to see. If you look at this in verse 8. He kind of responds to David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, He's telling Nathan, here's what you tell David. I took, or, or thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. See, what, what God is doing is he's, he's changing, helping to form, change David's perspective of who God is. God's telling David, I do not need you, David. But you know what? You definitely need me. As a matter of fact, without me, you'd still be out there cleaning up sheep droppings. <laughs> and so David's perspective is turned on its head. David's focus has been on what he might do for God. And that we fall into that same trap. We fall into the exact same trap David falls into. But what really matters, what has God done for you? What has God done for David in this case? And he says there in verse 8 9, I took you, I have been with you, I have cut off all your enemies, he says. I will make your name great. Took you from the pasture, following the sheep, that you should be prince over all my people. And then I have been with you wherever you went. In spite of... Your little missteps, I was still there. And have cut off all your enemies before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So he wants David to clearly understand how this thing works. Because David began to lose a little perspective. It really echoes the language of Genesis 12, when in Genesis 11, the people vainly try to make a name for themselves. Do you remember that? And by by contrast, God promises Abraham, I will make your name great. And this is really an allusion back to Abraham. It's a clue that the promise to Abraham is about to be focused and to be really fulfilled by David, by Israel's king, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. And so, 10, verses 10 and 11, it kind of moves out beyond David to Israel as a nation. Still talking to David, he's addressing David, but he's, he's moving <laughs> years ahead and addressing Israel as a nation. So David had assumed that he would build a home for God. And it may have been well intended, but it was sorely, his priorities were kind of out of whack there. Um, but the reality is, is that God is creating a home for his people through David. It's kind of an amazing twist on the whole thing. He'll complete that unfinished task of defeating all the enemies because it's not done yet. They got a lot of enemies to go yet. I mean, even today, right? Israel deals with enemies every day. So this is something that is prophetic. This is not something that, oh, okay, David, tomorrow all your enemies are going to be gone. No. No. This is something that's prophetic. And so he'll complete that unfinished task. And then they can, in verse 11, it says, then you can enjoy rest. It says there, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. That's been done, right? The land of Israel is there. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Well, that part's not done yet, because they're being disturbed every day. (laughs) They got their land, but they're, they're having some issues keeping it, and giving it up, and keeping it, and back and forth. It says, and violent men shall afflict them no more. Well, we know that's future. As formerly, verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And then he says this, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. That speaks of a time in the future. That speaks of a time when when God rules and reigns. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, or Yahweh, will make you a house. So he he flips everything around, and he says, I don't need a house. I am going to create a house for your people. Uh, That rest described in verse 11 really echoes that rest described back in verse 1, because it starts off that way. The Lord had given them rest. But here it's a future promise. There it was a present reality. Verse 1, they were really enjoying rest. The enemies weren't attacking anymore. So they thought, "Well, well, let's do something else. We'll build a house. But here he's saying, no, the rest is going to be future. And we're going to find out as we continue through the book, the rest doesn't last very long. The present reality of the rest doesn't last very long. But the future promise is still there, and it's still is intact. See, it's only when when God's king has defeated the last enemy, death itself, can God's people enjoy an eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath of God. All right? And for us, that's when we what? When we come to Christ. Then we can rest in Christ. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. We still have that rest that's in Christ. Christ that's so important to understand. Because there's a lot of people today that are restless. Got all this stuff going on all around them. And if you're not resting in Christ, you're not going to have rest. You're really not. You can try a lot of different things. Try medication. You can try helping people, working, whatever, trying to do, help society. It's not going to give you rest. The only thing that will give people rest is when they have come to acknowledge their sin and their need of a Savior, and come to the one and only person who can give them rest, and that's Christ. And that's what he says. Hey, your burden, you're carrying this burden. My, re- I have a restful place for you if you just come to me and trust me. So here, the language and the promises all emphasize God's power that he can do this. He's going to establish this. He's going to defeat their enemies. He's going to make a name for them. It's great. It's big. It's, you know, and God is saying, and you want to build me this little house? See what I mean? It's it's like sometimes our plans, even though they're well-intentioned, are minuscule to what God has planned. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody give a testimony where, you know, man, I can't believe what God has done. It never started out this way. You know, I remember hearing, um, Pastor MacArthur talking about the ministry that has been just blessed by God over the 50 years he's been there at that church. He's only the third pastor that church has ever had. And so when he came in, he came into a mess. I mean, he talks about it. There's unbelievers in the church and all kinds of craziness was going on. And yet he just faithfully taught the word, taught the word. And I remember one time someone was asked, well, how did you start the tape ministry because you know back then they had cassette tapes right and he said you know it was just some guy in our church started recording things from the very beginning and then people started asking so we needed to make copies and so you know he started making copies and giving them away and and then pretty soon you know a couple copies turned into a couple hundred copies and then pretty soon i mean it was amazing now they have thousands of messages online free you know But it wasn't planned. It was just something God did. I mean, if it would have followed His vision, it probably would have ended up being a tiny little ministry. See, we never know what God is going to do. Are are we pointing to the new house, the new Jerusalem? Huh? Are we pointing to the new house, the new Jerusalem? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a second, okay? Because that's that's an important thing to understand. So here, this language that he's using, he's talking about all the promises, and they all emphasize the power that God has. And, you know, in a way, I'm I'm reminded in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, where Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples (laughs) built by human hands. Isn't that amazing? And he says, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. That's Acts 17, 24 and 25. So we need to keep our perspective correct. The moment we think that, you know, oh, we are some, God needs me. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. And so he describes here David as the king. But God, in verse 5, if you look, God calls David what? Go and tell my king? No, he says my servant. Okay, gives David a little kind of dose of reality here. And yet there's so much of God's grace in this. You know, God isn't rebuking David in a way he is, but he's really not. I mean, there's so much of God's grace pictured here. It's, it's really amazing. There are examples of in the Eastern kings in, in the secular world, they basically, they pay for the blessings so people will construct a, a temple in their uh, memory kind of a thing. And, it, you know, if you have this magnificent temple, then that makes you a magnificent king. And God is playing to the opposite. He says, I don't need that. I'm already magnificent. Okay, they don't, you don't, that doesn't work with God. We don't don't do things for God so God will like us more. That's what God's grace is. God shouldn't treat us gracefully. He should judge us. He should cast us into hell. That's what we deserve. But God reaches out through the sacrifice of his son. He says, no, I'm going to treat you with grace. I'm going to treat you with mercy. And so David here gets status. He gets wealth. He gets victory glory, all these things, as the king. I mean, that's just some of the accolades that he would receive. But he's t- God's telling him, you don't have to do anything for this. This is my grace to you, David. And just to kind of remind him there, in verse 8, he reminds David, look, you were just a little shepherd boy. Do you remember? Have you forgotten? Everything that David had was from God. It was from the hand of God. Every time he escaped Saul's spear, it was by God's divine providence. And the reason why David will not build the temple is to prevent any suggestion that that God depends on human assistance. I think that's why. See, it's it's us who are utterly dependent on God each and every day. And that's what our prayer lives should depict. You know, when you, if you show me a Christian who's not a praying Christian, I'll show you a Christian who's filled with pride. Who thinks somehow they're the answer to everything. Because as a believer, you understand very clearly, you know what? I am so dependent on God each and every day. And so, what is prayer? Is prayer a little time in the morning where you set your little devotion and do your 15-minute thing and check the list? No, prayer is a conversation with God. And it happens 24-7 because it's an utter attitude of dependence upon God. That's what prayer is. And so if you're struggling with your prayer life, you might ask yourself, well, how independent of God am I? Do I do things without asking God? Do I kind of do my own thing? Am I, do I feel that I don't need God? That he saved me from my sins, and I understand that, but I can surely function on my own here. And the idea is, no, we can't. We are utterly dependent upon God each and every day. And so the response to David there is that is that promise and and, and really even to his descendants, he, he goes on here down further here in verse, uh, verse 12 when he talks about when your days okay, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. In other words... You know what, David? You're just here temporarily. But you're a critical link in the chain. <laughs> and you're not really even the, the answer. The answer is coming down the road. You're just part of the plan. And I think there in verses 12 and, and 13, when he talks about this, he may have Solomon in view. Um, you know, it's, it, it, Solomon is, is the one who will, what, succeed David, right? So, and it's Solomon who will eventually build the temple, verse 13. But I think even verses 14 and 16, as we look at this, it pushes it even out beyond Solomon. So he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come... Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me, what, a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So when you... See this? You you, kind of have to think of it not as you kind of think of something. Some of these things are happening down the road, all right. First, the word offspring or 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 seed there in verse twelve, when he says, "I will raise up your offspring." The word seed, um, it's it's also another echo of the the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter twelve, verse seven. The Bible plays on the kind of the ambiguity of this word. And a lot of commentators talk about, was this singular or is it plural? Well, it's clearly plural back in Genesis chapter 13, which says that the offspring of Abraham would be so numerous that they can't be counted. Obviously, that's a plural thing there. Yet Paul, in Galatians 3.16, refers to it as singular. And so this is a promise of one particular offspring here. Guess who that is? Jesus Christ. The point of this double meaning is that that Christ is the promised Savior, but through him, God will save a great multitude. So there's only one Savior, but there's going to be a great multitude of people saved through that one Savior. And see, Abraham's offspring is both singular and many. It's Christ and his people. So there's one representative who will redeem God's people as a whole. And what God promises now to David is that this rescuer, the Messiah, will be from his line. That's what he's telling him. So this promise isn't just a promise of succession. He's not just thinking, oh yeah, your sons are going to be kings. No, he's not. It's a promise of salvation through his descendants. So I think I, I put there on the outline, on the back there, here, clearly, David, or the Messiah, will be David's son through the lineage of David. And that's, that's what the. I mean, if you look at the New Testament, right? Look at Matthew. Uh, Matthew establishes this very well. Listen to what it says Matthew 1 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why do you think it's so important? Because it's got to make that tie. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And it goes through the whole genealogy. That's why it does that. Because it has to tie that in. And so we see clearly that the Messiah will be David's son. Will be David's son. Um. Secondly, you also see here that the Messiah will be the builder of God's temple. This is what he says here in verse 13. He's going to build God's temple and he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of him of his kingdom forever so he's going to build the messiah is going to be the builder of god's temple and guess what he's building that temple each and every day how when people come to christ right what does the bible say that we are the what the temple, the temple of the holy spirit what is the temple what is the ark what does it represent the dwelling place of God. Well, where does God dwell today? In our hearts, in our lives, right? As, as we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit invades us. And that's why the New Testament says, hey, take care, take care of your temple. Don't you know that it's a temple of the Holy Spirit? So it's, it's important that we understand that. And see, and this is a, a temple that's not complete yet because not everybody's saved yet. And so we can't always think of this temple as a physical temple. I mean, I'm sure it has an understanding of that. But I think that it's, it's more so the, the spiritual nature of the church is what he's talking about. And then also, the Messiah will be God's son. It says there in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. All right. All um, right. Now, you have to remember in in prophecy, okay, these are words related to Jesus, all right? But then you get down to the next part of the verse when it says what? When he commits, what's it say, iniquity, right? When he sins, I will, this, well, wait a minute. Can Jesus sin? No, this is referring to David. This is how prophecy works. I mean, you can get yourself in a world of trouble unless you understand that. And so as a human father disciplines his sons, so the Lord would discipline David and his descendants. And that's what happens. He disciplines them. But the ultimate seed of, of David will not be a sinner as David was, and that seed was Christ. And that goes all the way back to Genesis, remember? I mean, you know, the whole idea that that um, he will bruise and he will be crushed. I mean, that whole thing speaks of all this. It's it's just woven throughout the scriptures. And then also his 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 kingdom will be eternal. This isn't a kingdom that is touched by death. It's not a kingdom that's touched by sin. It's not a Place that's touched by time. Okay, this is an eternal kingdom. It transcends time. And it says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That means, you know what? Death won't end it, sin won't corrupt it, and time won't exhaust it. It's going to go on forever. That's the kind of kingdom we're talking about. Now, that's an amazing contrast to how we started with David saying, hey, I think I want to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house, God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm king. I can do that. I got the resources. We're going to build you a fine, nice And God says, you don't even understand what's going on here, pal. You have no idea. And sometimes we fall into that same kind of mentality. You notice Saul had no dynasty to follow him, right? It ended. Boom. Why? Because it wasn't part of God's plan. But David's dynasty will continue. It will be eternal. And you know what? When you, when you go back through time and you look through all the centuries that have followed since that time, has God kept that promise? Yes. Yes. You know what? Not without some bumps in the road. The, 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 the nation of Israel divided into ten northern tribes known as Israel, two southern tribes known as Judah. In the northern kingdom at times, there were military coups, one after the other. And only rarely did dynasties form. And if they did form, they weren't formed for very long. Usually they ended by murder or they ended by death in a battle somehow. God shortchanged it because that wasn't his plan. But through all the chaos of of Judah's history, the king was always a son of David. The line is complete. And it wasn't through some personal merit, but because of God's promise. God keeps his promises. Sin could not confound or, or hold down or change the purposes of God. Just like sin cannot change or hold down the purposes of God in our own lives. We saw that when we went through Romans. Even God uses our sin at times for his glory. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you stop and think about it. There are times in our lives when we think, wow, you know, we heard some, we went to this uh, California renewal project and we heard some incredible testimonies. Of these guys that got up and, and shared their personal testimony of how, you know, why they're pro life and how their parents tried to abort them, but they were unsuccessful. And they're standing before us and they're running for governor, or they're running for whatever. They're, yeah, I mean, incredible man of God today. Just, just an amazing story. And it's like, wow, God took all that yuck, all that sin, and yet, wow, this is the outcome? Amazing. But it shouldn't surprise us. We see it throughout Scripture, right? We, you read the pages of Scripture. Oh, man, this doesn't look good. Oh, man, what's going to happen? You know, you can't wait to, whoa, look at what God did. That's, that should be a picture of our lives. And so that's why we never give up hope. Even though it's all dark around us and things seem like they're falling off the walls and it doesn't look good, God's still in control. He's still in control. And God's purposes will not be thwarted. Individual kings might be condemned, but the line would always continue. Always continue. It continued even beyond the exile, despite the king being disposed. Finally, the angel Gabriel announced to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, You will conceive and give birth to his son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end, will never end. I mean, that echoes what we just read in 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. He will be great. Fulfills the Son of the Most High. Verse 14, verse 16. It will never end. See, both the adoptive father and human mother of Jesus are from the Lion of David. And when the, the voice of heaven says, you are my son, or when Peter confesses, even, that says to uh, Jesus that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, they have in mind Second Samuel seven fourteen, I will be unto him a father and he will be unto me a son. In view is not primarily the divine sonship, I would say, between of, of Jesus. The, 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 you know, it, it affirms that. The Bible clearly affirms that. But it really speaks of the Davidic sonship of Jesus. See, but Jesus is not just another king in the line of David, right? We know this. He's the ultimate king. He's the, the destination. This is what everything was working up to, to this point. He will be the king who ultimately rescues God's people and reigns over them forever. I mean, you think back, the disciples at the foot of the cross, they probably thought, well, this didn't end well. <laughs> there's our Savior. There's our Messiah. He's dead. It seemed like it was exhausted, right? It seemed like it was over. How many times in our lives do we think it's over? <laughs> we just want to give up. We don't know what God has planned. You don't have a clue. On that third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. And in doing so, says Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now Jesus has ascended to receive that eternal throne promised to the house of David. Tertullian said this, kind of a humorous quote. He says, if you tell me that Second Samuel 7 is just about Solomon, the early church father, Tertullian said this, you will see me into a fit of laughter. Because <laughs> it's not just about Solomon. It's prophetic. Because Christ, rather than any other, was to build the temple of God, that is to say, a holy manhood where God's Holy Spirit might dwell as a better, in a better temple. Christ, rather than David's son Solomon, was to be looked for as the son of God. I mean, people ask, why didn't God allow David to build a temple? Some say it was because there was a kinship won through the battle of blood. Perhaps also because David David amused it would be a crowning achievement for him to do so, would add to his Maybe pride. He had Project David in mind. Um, But God clearly shows us um, that that wasn't God's plan. And God's plan is always the right plan. John Woodhouse says this, The Lord seems to have suggested that David's motivation for thinking about building this house arose from a sense of having arrived. However, the Lord was not yet ready to rest from His work on behalf of His people, or from the fulfillment of His promise to Abraham. So God has much bigger plans than us, and we'll we'll see this even as we continue next week, looking at verses um, eighteen to, to to the end of the chapter. But it's it's just a, a good thing for us to remember, I think, as believers that you know what. There's nothing wrong with planning things. There's nothing wrong with having some kind of form or purpose to ministry. But never, ever fall into the trap of thinking, oh, we've arrived. (laughs) This is it. You know, my plan is the only." no. Uh, You know, because God can turn things upside down real quick.